This morning our sermon is coming from Genesis chapter 19, Genesis chapter 19, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And before we read that chapter, we'll pray, so please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be made ready to receive these words for that which they truly are, the very words of God. Father, may we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient, and help us, Father, to understand these things which are difficult to read, even to read out loud. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 19 at verse 1. Just remembering that Abraham has interceded for Sodom, hoping that there would be 10 righteous men in the place. Um, It turned out that there were not 10 righteous men in the place, but even so, Abraham was interceding for Lot and God would not destroy Lot with the city. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favour also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulphur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out from the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Verse 30. Now Lot went up to Zoar, Sorry, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, 
and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make, make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Amen. And may God bless that word to us. Uncomfortable just to read that out loud. Uncomfortable just to read that out loud. Uncomfortable just to think about those things. I remember, for example, my own daughter, you know, as, as a young Christian, she was about the age of 12 or 13 and um, she committed herself to the Lord and she set herself a goal and that was to read through the scriptures from start to finish, the whole Bible. And, uh, you know, you're at Genesis 19, you're not that far into the whole Bible, but she came to me one afternoon at home and um, I remember she was, she was trembling. She was trembling. What's wrong? She said, Dad... Why did God preserve those people? Why did God even preserve Lot? Why did God preserve Lot and his daughters? Why weren't they just taken away in the judgment? I said, what's, I said, are you sort of, you know, I clarified a bit. What's the problem? Are you basically just utterly revolted by what you have read? And the answer was yes. Just utterly revolted by what I have read. I said, well, you've got to remember there's a person called Ruth who was a Moabitess. Ruth. Remember Ruth the Moabitess and she was the grandmother of King David. So even in this sin and even in this wickedness and even in the offspring of this uncleanness, God still had his elect. And if she's the grandmother of King David, well, then she's in the genealogy of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you familiar with the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception? It's not actually talking about the virgin birth. It's to do with the character of the Virgin Mary. And they basically ascribe God-like character to the Virgin Mary, that she was sinless, that she was righteous, that she was holy. They reason that for our Lord himself to be righteous and holy, he had to come from a womb that was sinless and righteous and holy. But then... Then they have to deal with the question of, well, from which womb did a sinless, righteous, holy and spotless Mary come? Well, she was the daughter of a woman, so they make that woman sinless, righteous and spotless also. It's, it's just religious doctrine being invented for the sake of inventing religious doctrine. But then they supposedly trace a line of supposedly religious, righteous, holy women all the way back to <laughs> all the way back to the creation of humanity. Understand something. Our saviour had to be born of the seed of the woman and the woman that he had to be born of the seed of, Eve, was most definitely a sinner. She was coveting the fruit which she was commanded not to eat. She looked upon it, she gazed upon it, she ate it, she fell into sin. I don't want a saviour who cannot identify with me. As a matter of fact, such a saviour could not save me. Such a saviour could not save you. Okay, this horrible little bit of uncleanness is in the genealogy of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that. This, this, this disgusting, revolting behaviour, it's in the genealogy of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. His humanity was truly human. His humanity was truly human. Doctrine is important. We need to be saved by someone who is both truly human of the seed of the woman and truly divine of God himself, God of God, son of God. And 
Basically, though we might sit here and though we might think this is disgusting, this is evil, this is wicked, and it is disgusting, evil, wicked behaviour, both in Sodom and in the family of Lot himself, it is. My friends, the Lord Jesus came into the world to save disgusting, wicked, horrible sinners. And if you think that apart from the grace of God, you would not be able to step into this level of depravity, you're fooling yourself and you're overrating yourself and you're thinking to yourself that you're a better person than you actually are. Okay? The only thing that has limited, restrained, in some cases switched off, changed our depravity, our desire for wickedness and sin is the grace of God and the power of God's Holy Spirit. Apart from that, my friends, there is no hope for any of us. And if apart from that, God were to turn any of us over to our sins, we would be on that decline that we just read about in Romans chapter 1. If he turned us over to our wickedness, to the wickedness that is found in our own hearts, we would be on that decline. We would deny the God who created us. We would seek a God who is an idol and demanded no reformation of us. We would become enslaved to the lusts of our hearts. We would end up being as wicked as we could be if God turned us over to the, to the, to the sinfulness of our nature. We want a saviour. We want a saviour who is truly human. And so just remember as you read this that God had a plan. God had a plan of redemption all along. God had a plan of redemption that involved one of the offspring of Lot and his daughters. But we live in this kind of society right now, you and I. We live in a suburb of Sodom and Gomorrah. Am I saying Coomer's worse than any other town? No, I'm not. I'm saying that the nature of our nation the nature of the laws that are being passed, the nature of that which is being communicated to us through the officially approved channels over and over and over and over again is exactly the same as that which was being communicated in Sodom and Gomorrah. What are our laws? What are our laws? Well, our laws tell us, <coughs> pardon me, that we must accept that pretending is reality. You must accept that pretending is reality and you must pretend that pretending is reality. What do I mean by that? Well, what is marriage? God established marriage. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman brought together by God for the purpose of raising godly offspring. That's marriage. It is God who created humanity in his image, male and female, he made them. And so it is God who says, who defines by right of his being God, the creator, what marriage is. And God says marriage is the union of a man and a woman. What do our laws say? Marriage is anything. Love is love. Male, male, female, female, whatever. And you know the day is going to come when they're going to start making marriage three people, four people, whatever. These are on our law books. This is the nature of our society. How much TV do some of us watch? I mean, my, my job, I'm, I'm kind of blessed. My job, in a way, actually precludes me watching very much regular TV at all. I work odd hours. I don't, get the term, I don't watch anything much. <clears throat> but I get home on weekends and I see some ad advertisements and the advertisements tell me all I need to know. What are the advertisements communicating? Well, reality shows have to now include the stock number of lesbians and sodomites. They have to be there because our mass media must communicate according to the official narrative and the official narrative is that love is love. Home renovation shows must feature perverts committing abomination, etc., etc. It's all around about us. Movies, TV shows, series, books, novels, you name it. Games. And old stories have to be rewritten. New versions of Lord of the Rings are coming out if you don't know it and the world has said, no, that's too clean and too uh, classical a story. We have to make it a little bit more woke. 
And now in the background, if you watch closely enough on family movies, like, you know, that you get from Disneyland, you see boys kissing boys and girls kissing girls. What are they trying to do? Normalise that which is an abomination in the sight of God. The right reaction to this open, overt, uncontrolled sexuality is, well, you know, don't get me wrong. I I don't speak of my family and my children as being perfect. You know, I I know them. They know me. I'm I'm not trying to idealise my daughter. But her reaction was actually the right reaction. When she read what happened in Genesis chapter 19 and that trembling revulsion, that's the right reaction of anyone who has the fear of God in them. When we look at our nation around about us, we should have this feeling. In a way, we should be thinking, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. This nation, these people, this is not my people. I don't fit in. I will not march to the beat of that drum. I hate that behaviour. This is disgusting. This is an abomination. And even as we think that, we should remember, and but for the grace of God, if God had handed me over to my sins and my lusts, I would be no better. Even so. You know, it's all around about us and all the pressure is upon us to pretend that pretending is reality. It's basically against the law to be proclaiming the things that I'm saying here today. It's hate speech. You know, it's hate speech to tell someone that you're destroying yourself. It's hate speech to tell someone that what you're doing is an abomination in the sight of God. It's hate speech to tell someone that this will most assuredly enslave you to your sin and your sin will take you to hell. Hate speech. My friends... With regards to Western society, Sodom is basically ruling. We're living in it. You know, and there are corners of hope and there are corners of light and that's really good and that's great. And, you know, there's more than 10 faithful people to be found in most cities. So praise God for the preserving effect of God's grace. But what right have we got not to expect God to pass judgment upon cities, towns and nations? What right have we got to not expect God's judgment to fall upon this nation in its rebelliousness? The hypocrite who is our Prime Minister claims to be a Christian. I remember once he got interviewed. I don't know if he was sitting in his own library or once, but I saw the interview on TV. He was sitting in, a, uh, in what was obviously someone's study, whether it was his own or not, I don't know. And the shelves behind him were loaded with the same books that are on my bookshelf. There was books on theology. There were books on church history. There, were, there, were, there was Hebrew books. There was Greek books. All of this stuff. I mean, if you don't understand, the signal he was sending out to anyone who was looking closely enough to see was, oh, yes, I'm a solid, serious Christian. Oh, yes, I, I, I really believe the stuff that I find in the Bible. Look at the books behind me. Systematic theologies. All sorts of stuff, commentaries, it was all there. And yet he says things like, my Christian faith has absolutely no influence on what I do politically. Well, I'll give you my answer. If your Christian faith does not have influence on everything that you do, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep and even the dreams you have at night, and I mean that, if your Christian faith does not have influence on everything that you do, Maybe you don't actually have Christian faith. You've got a religion. It's some kind of pseudo-Christianity, but if it's not influencing everything you do, everything you think, every move you make, maybe you'd better not be calling yourself a Christian. And, you know, his recent little gem of wisdom. I think the abortion laws in Australia are just where they should be. Oh, good for you. Good for you, Mr Morrison. You're perfectly happy with the number of babies that are being killed and how they're being killed and when they can be killed. You're happy with that. Does he ever ask himself, how does God see these things? 
Is God happy with this? Is this according to the law of God? Is this according to God's righteousness? There's a special judgment reserved for those who would claim to be the people of God but are not. You know, the goats mixing among the sheep. There's a special judgment reserved, the scripture tells us. You know, that commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When you call yourself a Christian, when you take that name, I'm a Christian. Whose name is in that word? Christ, Christ, Christ's one, one of Christ's people. Call yourself a Christian, you're taking the name of the Lord. How you live, how you live is indicative of whether you're taking the name of the Lord in vain or not. So we have this city and in this city we have this man and his name is Lot. And scripture tells us that Lot is accounted righteous. I I honestly think might well be the weakest believer described in all of scripture. Might well be, you know, just the, the... the, the, the man in scripture that you would think is least likely <laughs> to be called righteous, it's Lot. Think about it. Lot has faith. Some of the indicators that Lot has faith is that he knows that the behaviour that he witnesses in Sodom and Gomorrah is wickedness. We're told in Second Peter that it troubled his soul. He knew that it was wickedness. He met the men. Soon enough, I think he realised the men weren't just men, but were actually men sent from God, possibly angels. And he tried to protect them from the wickedness of the city. I mean, imagine what Abraham was thinking as Abraham was interceding for that city. If you find but 10 righteous people there, but 10. If you find 10 there, will you preserve the city? And God said yes. And I can imagine Abraham thinking, Lot's been down there a fair while now. And he, he, he joined me in the worship of the living God, so I, I have good hopes for Lot. Well, he's got a wife and he's got daughters and the daughters have probably got by now husbands. And there's a little gathering, he's thinking, in, in Abraham's mind, a little gathering of believers who believe the truth and who believe in the one true living God. And Abraham You know, he's probably imagining that by now Lot probably could have gathered 10 believers together. But Lot couldn't even transmit the faith to his family. Lot's wife looked back. You know, she looked back to that city of disgusting, evil, wicked behaviour. She looked back. Do not look back. She looked back. Became a pillar of salt. Lot's daughters, he offers them to the men of the city, do them as you please. And it's like, we've already got them. How do I know they've already got them? Well, look at the behaviour of the daughters. Lot raised his daughters in Sodom and Sodom raised itself up in the heart of his daughters. You raise your children in Sodom, I'm warning you. You raise your children in Sodom, you get Sodom in your children. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then what are you told to do? Just turn quickly to Deuteronomy 6. Did I misspeak? Love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's the picture here of this man who loves the Lord his God? Everything that is under that man's authority is surrounded by, covered by, filled with, the word of God. How small time a person are we? You know, how small time a man are we? Or a, or a woman for that matter, a mother. How much of a nobody are we? 
On the scale of the world, I'm an absolute nobody. I know it. The way the world judges, the way the world looks at things, I'm a nobody. My friends, Mr. Nobody, and you out there, Mr. Nobodies, you know, not many of the great, not many of the powerful, not many of the famous, Mrs. Nobodies, guess what? God has put certain things under your authority. God has elevated nobodies like you and I to positions of authority. My authority is the household that he has given me and all that come into it, whether they come in visiting, whether they come in through birth. God has set me over a wife and children and has given me a house. And what has God said to me? What is God saying to you in that which we read? You shall teach them diligently to your children. They shall not escape from these words. You shall teach them diligently. You know, diligence. What's diligence? If you do something diligently, it is your disciplined practice. That's diligence, a disciplined practice. Regularity, monotony in a way. Driving the point home again and again and again. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Men, nobodies like me, whatever authority God has given you, he's given you to use it to propagate his word. And you are required to propagate it to the people he has placed under your authority. And you, by the way, I, by the way, we, by the way, we'll answer to God for how we use that authority. We will answer to him for this. These things are supposed to be in our conversation. They're supposed to be every which way you look in our house. You know, a frontlet before your eyes. Now, I don't see anyone carrying one of those little containers with a little verse of scripture strapped to their head that some of the Orthodox Jews wear. But what's it saying? You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That territory which God has entrusted to you, those souls that God has entrusted to you, You shall bathe the whole lot in the word of God. You shall bathe the whole whole lot in the knowledge of God that God has given you. You shall communicate these things. Now, this doesn't actually promise us that our kids are going to be saved. It doesn't. God is sovereign. God doesn't work to formulas. God doesn't work in response to our works. Understand, if this promised us that our children would be saved, what it would be saying is if you do A and B, you can therefore assume that God must do C and D. But God himself says, I don't owe any man anything. All of the heavens and all of the earth are mine in the first place. Job 41.11. I don't owe anyone anything. So just because you do A and B, there's no absolute guarantee that God is going to do C and D. But I'm telling you, Let's look at this for a bit, for a few minutes. God has a regular means. God has a regular way of doing things. The truth is God could save a person without the involvement of any other person on the face of the earth. If there's some native somewhere in some jungle or desert, somewhere in the world today, and that native is all alone, there's not a single Christian within a thousand kilometres of that person. If God wants to convert that person, I'm telling you now, God can do it directly by the power of his Holy Spirit, dealing immediately with the heart of that person, not using any other person on the face of the earth. He could do it by his miraculous power. There is absolutely no doubt that he could do it. But the scripture doesn't tell us that that's God's normal means of bringing people into the kingdom. What is God's normal means of bringing people into the kingdom? God's people pray. God's people live out God's word. God's people communicate God's word to the people around about them. Almost everyone you talk to when you talk to them about how they became a Christian, somebody who was already a Christian communicated with them. Whether it was words, whether it was passing out a tract, whether it was giving them a book or a Bible. Somebody who was already in the kingdom reached out to somebody who was outside of the kingdom and it turns out that God blessed their efforts and drew that person into the kingdom. Even for people raised in a Christian household, even so, someone communicated the word of God to you. 
So it's not guaranteed that our efforts are going to be blessed. But here's something I'll tell you that is guaranteed. If there are no efforts, there will be no blessing. Okay, my favourite illustration here is from farming, from agriculture. A farmer does everything in hope. You plough, you sow, you cultivate in the hope of a harvest. But along the way, you're completely at the mercy of the elements. In other words, you're completely at the mercy of the providence of God. Floods, fires, storms, pestilence, etc., can wipe out the crop that you have hoped to harvest and you can get nothing. So it's not guaranteed that in your efforts as a farmer, you will get a crop. But there is something that is guaranteed. If you don't make the effort, you won't get a crop. (laughs) It's not guaranteed that your efforts will be blessed, but it is 100% guaranteed that if you do not make the effort, there is nothing to be blessed and it won't be blessed. It's the same with us and the propagation of the gospel. It's not guaranteed that our efforts will be blessed. You know, I I read of certain types of evangelists back in the day saying, give me five minutes with anyone and I'll get a commitment. In other words, they're saying my efforts are guaranteed. (laughs) No, they're fools. Anyone who speaks like that is a fool. It's not guaranteed. It can't be guaranteed because it's in the providence of God and we don't limit, we don't control, we don't bring God into any kind of debt. The only thing that controls God is God. The only thing that we can count on with regards God is God's promises. He limit or he binds himself to his promises because he is a good and true and holy and righteous God. So our efforts in the propagation of the gospel, whether it be to our family or to the people around about us, there's no absolute guarantee of a harvest. But I'm telling you what's guaranteed. If there is no effort, there will be no harvest. You've got to cultivate in hope. You've got to farm in hope. You've got to spread the seed in hope. You've got to do these things. If there is no effort, there will be no harvest. And so let's bring this back down into where we're at in the scripture and look at this man Lot. He had no influence on his wife. She looked back. She was losing everything that was dear to her as this city of sinners and wickedness was reduced to ashes. She was not revolted by that which she saw around about her. She considered it to be a normal part of life. He had, now the scripture calls them sons-in-law because in the Jewish mind, a betrothal, what we call an engagement, was as formal and official as a marriage. If you were to break off an engagement, it was exactly the same process as enacting a divorce. And so these men who are engaged to his daughters, they're called sons or sons-in-law. He had no influence on the sons or the sons-in-law, none whatsoever. When he came to warn them, judgment is here. Get out of this city. What are we told? But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. It's a joke. It's funny. Ha, 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 ha. You think there's a God and you think that God is going to judge? Oh, right. I don't know if you've noticed how much people tell you that there is a God and that God is going to. I'm sorry. I don't know if you notice how much people hate it when you tell them that there is a God and that God is going to judge. And they will call you an idiot. Right? Why? Why do soft-handed, limp-wristed, effeminate churches not ever speak of judgment? And the answer is because they're afraid. They're afraid of the laughter that comes in their general direction. They're afraid of not appearing to be educated in the eyes of the world. It's funny, you know, I, you know, you look at me and you know that I've undertaken practically no formal study. But I can think of a young man who rung me up and said, I think I've been called into the ministry. And I said, well, what you need to do is you need to undertake some formal study. 
don't follow the path of this fool. You go and learn your languages and go and learn your church history. You go and enrol yourself and you get the education you need to do the job better than I can hope to do it. But you'll notice amongst those who've gone through the academy that there is a risk. There's a danger. The risk is that they start to worry more about their respectability and their position amongst men than they care about their loyalty to the word of God and proclaiming the truth to the people around about them. And they they go soft. And they're they're always willing to talk about, pardon me, I need a drink of water. They're always willing to talk about the things that they know that the world wants to hear. Okay, a God of love, a God who actually said that he is love. We find that in 1 John, a God of grace, a God willing to forgive sins. It's all true. God is gracious and merciful. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is willing to forgive any sin. Nobody but nobody is too low and too deep in their sins to come to salvation. Nobody. Drug addicts, prostitutes, Satanists, occultists, abortionists, you name it. Nobody but nobody is too low and too deep in their sins to be saved. It's true. Praise God. Praise God. But that same God himself, through the Son, through the Son of God, through the Lord Jesus himself, Who's the teacher in the Bible that spoke most about judgment and hell? Our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He spoke most about hell. He spoke most about an eternity under the judgment of God. He spoke the most that people ought to fear God. He even warned, guess what? All judgment and all authority has been handed over to me. And I'm going to judge according to the word of God. And I'm going to judge according to the righteous law of God. In the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, when Jesus speaks of his sending away the sinners, what does he say to them? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. You who are against the law. Depart from me. God has handed all judgment to me and I am going to judge according to the law of God. And my final judgment is eternal and there is no escape. That's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who came to seek and to save the lost. That's Jesus whose love was so great that he bore the sins of sinners upon the cross and suffered punishment in their place. Turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. God, in revealing himself to Moses, spoke about himself. Now, think about it. If God himself is speaking about himself, it's worth listening. You know, when God himself describes himself, you want to know what God himself has to say about himself. That makes sense. So God here, showing himself to Moses. Remember, Moses asked to see God and God said, I will show you my hindermost parts. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. Exodus chapter 34, we read from verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Proclaimed the name of the Lord. He gave him his name and then he gave him to know according to the nature of the name. This is proclaiming his name and his character is tied up in his name. Verse 6, the Lord or Yahweh passed before him, before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, which is Yahweh, or you might have Jehovah. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Amen. We want to know about that. We want to know about that. Our God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. It goes further, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) For what hope have I got 
If my God were not a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, what hope do any of us have? What's the next word in the text? But. Okay. But what does that tell us? That which is about to come must be set in opposition to that which came before. You have to hold both things and understand that one thing is in opposition to the other thing. This God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Well, there's something we've got to reconcile and understand, isn't there? Isn't there? He will by no means clear the guilty. Ask your question. Think about it. If you have committed iniquity, transgression and sin, are you guilty? You're guilty. So how do we understand this? This is important, my friends. This, this little passage, this is at the very heart of the gospel. Believe it or not, this is at the very heart of Christian doctrine and understanding. This is important. If you have committed iniquity and transgression and sin, you are surely guilty. And the scripture tells us here that God will by no means clear the guilty. How does that work? Well, let's first of all understand it from the Old Testament. Turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, glorious psalm. I love this psalm. We'll start reading from verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, the psalmist is referring to that, that thing that we just looked at in Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7. Listen to the echoes of the words. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. Remember, he was speaking to Moses in Exodus 34. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And here's the direct quote. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The psalmist is actually going to give us a hint here of how this is done. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. For God so loved the world. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, remember our little conundrum that we got at Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Great, wonderful, good. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Oh, dear, if I've committed iniquity, transgression and sin, I'm counted as guilty. It's a dilemma. What does the psalmist say? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God has a means of removing our guilt from us. He takes the guilt away. So think of that in light of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. What's Exodus 34, 6 and 7 saying? All are guilty, but there are those against whom the Lord does not count their guilt. All are guilty, but there are those against whom the Lord does not count their guilt. Psalm 103 tells us that guilt is moved on. Separated from us as far as the east is from the west. At this point, I often think I'm glad he doesn't say as far as the north is from the south, because that's a, that's a distance that can be calculated. 
You know, you can put a dot on the North Pole, a dot on the South Pole and calculate the distance. East from west, you just keep going. As far as the east is from the west, guilt, sin, transgression, gone, forgotten, dealt with somehow. How? Well, we need to go to the New Testament where these things are made even clearer. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we pick up at verse 14, the Apostle Paul. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Stop and think about what he's saying. What's the punishment for sin? What's the wages of sin? The wages of sin are death. So a guilty sinner, in order for God to be just and to keep his law, a guilty sinner has to come to death. What does the Apostle Paul say? One died for all, therefore all have died. He died on behalf of guilty sinners. And because of this, guilty sinners are counted as having had the price of their sins paid. The death required by the law of God has been done, paid, finished, completed. And he died for all, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What would he mean by that? Well, remember, all are guilty. The Apostle Paul is saying that all are born in the state of guilt, but God will by no means clear the guilty. Remember? But Paul says, no, we don't look at people like that anymore. We're Christians. We're in Christ. We no longer look at people like that. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Something new, something brand new, something that you never were before. Now, when I speak of sin and wickedness and I remind us of our own wickedness, I'm hoping you feel the pain of it. I am. I'm hoping you feel the conviction of it. I'm hoping you wish that... You know, I wish when he said these things he wasn't speaking about me, but I know that it's true. I feel the pain of it, even as I'm doing it. But guess what? There's this person, this new creation, the new creation that you have become in Christ is not counted as being guilty of the sin that the old creation committed in Adam. In Adam, all guilty. God will by no means clear the guilty. In Christ, all cleansed, forgiven, made alive. In Christ, all who are in Christ have life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So remember, we've been changed for a reason. Remember, we've got to sow. You know, you farm, you sow, you you spread the seed in hope. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What happened to our sin? Where did it go? How did it get separated as far as the east is from the west? Here's how. For our sake... He, that's God, made him, that's Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The guilt landed somewhere. You know, salvation is not God writes your sins on a whiteboard and says, and now I just erase the sins. That's not the picture. The guilt landed somewhere. It landed on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he died in our place. He died on our behalf. And so we're counted as alive. We're counted as new creations. We're separated from our sins as far as the east is from the west. We've been cleansed. We've been made alive. We've been made new creations. Our sin landed on Jesus, his righteousness landed on us. The great exchange, imputation, imputation, an accounting word. 
Numbers moved from one column to another. The numbers of our sins moved into Jesus' column. The numbers of his righteousness moved into our column. And we're counted as righteous. We're counted as the people of God. Our God has forgiven us our sins. And he does not count our guilt because our guilt landed upon Jesus. And so this God whom we're charged with revealing to the world, this God whom we have to preach about, speak about, share, this God whom we have to speak to our children about, he's not a nice, tame lion, to use C.S. Lewis's illustration. He's not an animal in a cage. He's not under our control. C.S. Lewis says he's a wild lion, but he's good. But he's good. This is the God whom we have to share in the world. And so we have to be willing to speak about the fact that he will not clear the guilty. If you want people convicted of their sins, my friends, well, we've got an uncomfortable job. We have to be willing to speak about sins. We have to be willing to speak about the wickedness of our world around us. We have to be willing to speak about the judgment that must fall on Australia and that is falling on Australia even now. It is. You know, why is the most important thing in the lives of Australians that somehow or other they blot out all forms of reality for at least a period of their life on a regular basis? You know, what rules, what dominates out there in the world at this moment? Porn, drugs, alcohol, computer games and all the other electronic muck that comes there. That's what rules, that's what dominates. What's it all about? Get me in a little bubble where I don't have to think about anything serious. Do not confront me with a, with a serious thought. My, my idolatrous God has told me that there's no meaning in life apart from the pleasure of the moment. Therefore, do not interfere with the pleasure of the moment. Leave me alone that I can get onto my drugs, my alcohol, my porn, my electronic online life, which is an unreal, not real, not genuine life. I can live in fantasy land rather than face reality. Because facing reality is too hard. Because in reality, I know that there's a real God and I know that he demands I repent of my sins and I just want them too badly. They're the people we're sent out to preach to and we preach about the graciousness and the mercy of our God and his willingness to receive sinners who seek forgiveness. Jesus said, by no means will I cast any of them away. By no means. But even at the same time, my friends, we must warn. Okay, the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. I don't claim to know. There are things I don't know. All right. I see the wickedness and the rebellion that's in the world at the moment. And I understand why there are people who wonder if we're not living in the end of the end days. And if there's no reason to expect the Lord Jesus to return in our own lifetime. But to anyone who's wondering those things and thinks those questions, just remember this. If you read carefully through church history, you'll find from the very beginning, way back in 100 AD, all the way forward, there were always people who were studying the scriptures and seeing the wickedness of the world around them and wondering if I don't live in the days when the Lord himself returns to bring all of this to an end. And people like St. Augustine wondered if the destruction of the Roman Empire wasn't the prelude to the destruction of the whole world. And people like Martin Luther wondered if the, um, the, the Protestant, it was practically a revolution, wondered if the Protestant Reformation was not indicating that the end of the world was coming because he calculated, he, came, he became convinced that the Pope was the Antichrist and when he reads the book of Revelation, the Antichrist ends up in the lake of fire. Okay, all through Christian history, people have asked that question. So I can't tell you anything in terms of, is this happening in our lifetime? Yes, no, maybe, I don't know. But I can tell you this. Scripture tells me our God rules 
Our God judges. Our God runs the nations. Our God raises nations up. Our God strikes nations down. Our God raises kings up. Our God strikes nations down. Our God blesses nations. Our God takes away the blessings when nations spit in his face. And our nation has been spitting in his face now for a good while. Formally. That's what laws are. They're formal expressions of a will. Formally spitting in the face of God. And so... To the people around us, we're idiots and fools and we warn them the judgment is coming and we warn them that perhaps this nation is going to collapse in on itself and who knows what kind of disaster God might bring upon us. We've had flyers, fires, we've had floods, we've had all, all kinds of things happening. You know, what was his name, the rugby player? Israel Folau. Someone sneaks into a church service. Remember, he's preaching. And he's warning those who are listening. Just a small service. It wasn't honestly much bigger than this. It was a tiny little church. And he's warning those. He's saying, if you can't look at what was happening around about us, if you can't look at the fires and the flooding, if you can't understand that these things are the judgment of God against the sins of our nation, you don't want to. And then someone took that footage out and they put it online and it made the news. And didn't the world hate him and hate anyone who dared to agree with him for saying such a thing? For daring to say such a thing? Why have we got government at this moment and people in government who simply cannot get hold of enough power? They want to control your every decision. They they want to make your every decision for you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They're trying to set themselves up in the place of God. Why do we have government at this moment? Those who govern apparently feel that the rules don't apply to them. Why do they feel they're above the rules and we're below the rules? There's one standard for them, there's another standard for us and we're to obey unquestioningly. Now, they've backed off a bit. You know, there's an election to be won and it's kind of hard to win an election when you're being unpopular and sending out the sending out the Gestapo into the streets, making sure people are obeying your every decree. So they've backed off for the time being. What are they going to do after the election's over and someone comes to power? It's a good question. I don't know. Don't claim to know. I really don't. But I don't think it's going to be good. I don't think they're going to do the right thing. By, the, by, by Australians. I don't think they're going to respect this thing that we call freedom. Why can they get away with that? Why do they get away with not respecting this thing that we call freedom, by the way? Well, you go out to the people of Sodom and you ask them what freedom is. And the people of Sodom will tell you that freedom is I can do whatever I want. I want to sleep with a boy, I sleep with a boy. I want to sleep with an animal, I sleep with an animal. I want to rape a girl, I rape a girl. I can do whatever I want. And if I want to throw a baby in a fire to appease my idol God, I throw a baby in a fire to appease my God. That's freedom. I can do whatever I want. That's freedom. What does the scripture say freedom is? Freedom is to have the ability and the power to obey God. The man who sins is a slave to his sin. The Apostle Paul also calls us what? Slaves of righteousness. You see, the scripture tells us that man was created a serving creature, a serving, worshipping creature. So what's freedom for a fish? Freedom for a fish is to swim in the water. What's freedom for a bird? Freedom for a bird is to fly in the air. They're acting according to the nature that God created in them. Their freedom is to do and to be what God made them to do and to be. So what's freedom for an image bearer of the living, of, of the living God? 
Freedom for an image bearer of the living God is to do and to be what God made you to be, which is a servant of the living God. Human freedom, true human freedom is the service of God. And so when we build laws in a society that are based upon true human freedom, you get freedom to meet, freedom to worship, freedom to preach, freedom to spread the gospel, freedom to proclaim Christ on any street corner. The real freedoms, the true freedoms, They're all based on our being the created image bearers of the living God and being enabled to live according to the nature that God designed in humanity. That's true freedom. Everybody serves. Everybody's a slave. Everybody's a created being. Everybody's in the hand of God. Everybody. The free people are the people who in the hand of God are obeying God. That's freedom. And when we talk about governmental freedom or freedom at law or freedom in our society, we who are the people of God, we're talking about the freedom to practice the worship of God, to practice our obedience to God. We're talking about the freedom to serve our God. And we're saying that to truly serve our God and to truly have freedom, we want, well, you would call it religious freedom. The right to proclaim the truth, the right to proclaim it here, there and anywhere at any time we so desire, the right to gather as the people of God, the right to sit under the word of God, the right to propagate the Holy Scriptures. When we talk about freedom, that's what we're thinking of. But when Sodomites talk about freedom, they're thinking of sin. And talking about sin. Freedom is the power to abuse yourself. Freedom is the power to abuse others. Freedom is the power to do wickedness. And so we live in this wicked, dark world. We're living here in the midst of the Sodomites, but praise God, there's more than 10. We have reason to hope for graciousness and mercy. We have reason to hope that the Lord will build his church and continue to build his church. You know, favourite illustration from my life. I I had a friend many years ago. He's a Greek guy. He ran a little seafood restaurant, called himself a fish and chip cook, etc., etc. He's a Christian, serious about it, serious about being a Christian. And he used to warn people about the coming judgment. He did. The sins we're committing, in the end, God must judge. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't, I'm not saying this guy was a deep theologian. I I doubt he's ever read a systematic theology. But he used to warn people. And I remember one day a supplier came into his shop and he thought it was funny. And he said to him, so tell me, Nick, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back at three o'clock tomorrow afternoon? And he said, my alarm would go off at four o'clock tomorrow morning and I'd get out of bed and I'd get in the ute and I'd drive to the markets and I'd buy the potatoes. And I'd come back to the shop and I'd start to feed the potatoes through the chip machine. And I'd preach the gospel to everyone that walked through the door and I'd hand out the tracts. And when the Lord returns, he'd find me here doing what I was given to do. If he were to come in judgment tomorrow, would he find us here doing what we were given to do? That's not saying everyone's called to be a missionary. That's not saying everyone's called to be an evangelist, a full-time pastor or a minister. You are put here with a purpose. You've been made a minister of reconciliation, remember? You've been given a seed to sow. Wherever you are, whatever you do, whoever you are, if the Lord returned tomorrow, will he find you doing what you've been given to do? Because that's what matters. And one of the things you've been given to do is to warn the people that the way we're living and the wickedness that we're promoting is going to bring about our destruction by one means or another. It will happen. It must happen. You cannot proclaim publicly your outright hatred of God and his law and not come up against the judgment of God. 
Because people who do these things are setting themselves up as God and you've got to understand that the one true living God is a jealous and a holy God and as far as he's concerned, there's one and there's one only God and it's himself. Father, Son and Holy Spirit and it's nobody else. Nobody else. He knows himself. He knows that he is the God of all creation. He rules over all creation and he's not about to start sharing his glory. So here we are. We're in Sodom. We've got a job to do. We've got seed to sow in the hope of a harvest. The judgment will come one way or another. Whether this is the final judgment of all the world or just God judging the nations that we call the Western nations, which were built up and blessed by the word of God. Everything that they are, you look at any nation in the world today and you think, I might like to live there. Life looks pretty good there. I'll guarantee you that nation at some point in time was basically a Christian nation. Churches, gospel being preached, people worshipping the living God. Laws based upon granting to people the freedom to serve God according to the word of God. And they're the nations that you want to live in. But how much longer can that last? We're living on borrowed time. We're living on borrowed grace. We're spitting in the face of God. Our laws are disgusting. We've called good evil. We've called evil good. We've decreed iniquitous decrees. How long? How long before fire rains down from heaven in one form or another? How long before everything that the people hold so dear gets taken away from them? Right, if it's not the end of the world, I've got a feeling God's going to smash the nations that are called the Western democracies. I've got a feeling they're going to be smashed back into the dark ages somehow or other. Are we doing that which we were given to do? And if the fools think that we're jesting, if the fools think that it's a joke, that's not our worry. Our worry is that we do that which we were given to do, which is to proclaim the truth. Our God is gracious and merciful, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. But he will by no means clear the guilty. So you'd better deal with the guilt. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, Father, I pray that you indeed would be gracious and merciful to this nation of Australia. I pray, Father, that you would build your church here. I pray, Father, that people would be called to faith and repentance. We pray, Father, that you would use us in this work. We pray, Father, that you would overlook the wickedness of our sins and that we would be given God-fearing and righteous rulers who will not decree iniquitous decrees, but who will do that which is right in your sight. Father, be merciful to us, we pray. And give us the courage and the power by the work of your Holy Spirit to preach the truth to all who, who will listen, whether they laugh, whether they receive the word. Lord, we know that's not our worry. Our worry is to be found doing that which we were given to do. And so we ask that we would be strengthened to do these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.